Have you watched the um, Paul Randall Ray with, with the other three economists at, at the budget hearing like last year? No, I know what you're talking about, but no, his, his congressional testimony. Right. Well, uh, Steve Womack is the senator here from my district, okay? And he went on and on about trying to trying to run down Randall Ray and 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 and, and the borrowing all that stuff all framed in the but but there was no legal jargon in anything that he said. It was basically fear-mongering, meaningless tripe. Um, I mean he he stands up at a town meeting right here in Northwest Iowa that I that I went to and and said that the federal government is broke. And when I shout out, the federal government creates the currency. About two-thirds of the room, which are his fans, look at me like there's about to be a lynching. <laughs> okay. So are we going to hear the end of the word, the use of the word borrowing anytime soon? No, I don't think so. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. of my two-part conversation with Mark Collins. Mark is a fourth-year MMT activist, Arkansas resident, and self-described far-to-the-left socialist. In this second half, Mark talks about how he spent five decades knowing that something was wrong with his understanding of the economy, but not being able to put his finger on it. Then, in November of 2016, one week after Donald Trump was elected president, Mark discovered Steve Grumbine on Real Progressives. Mark told me that Steve didn't get three sentences out before everything fell into place. He said it was like having a giant 5,000-piece puzzle completed long ago, but for three missing pieces. Once Steve popped them into place, quote, the picture is what it is, and you can't unsee it. Mark and I discussed the concepts of hierarchical versus collective societies, adulthood, securitization versus borrowing, sociology versus economics, and framing. A full description can be found before part one. As I said before part one, Mark is a storyteller. As I think back on this conversation, the words that keep occurring to me are philosophical and spiritual. Enjoy. Now, 
about that. About a society that still existed in the mid-70s that basically set emotional intelligence at, at a high enough standard that no one was honored with adult status unless they proved they were an adult. So it's not like humans can't do it. We've just chosen, in our rugged individual way, not to. Wow. Um, okay. Well, so let's see. Let's let's now let's start to bring MMT into this. So, you said before that you took some courses in macro and micro, and the macro came across to you as if it was not macro; that it just felt like more micro to you. So, so yeah. you, I mean, I I wonder number one. What background did you have to be able to even determine that if you had no macro background? And can you use that as a, as a, as a jumping off point to how you discovered MMT itself and how that fits into your, you know, pretty philosophical point of view? You know, I'm sure that that fits a role of like, you know, you saw your more liberal news which was, you know, an outlet for you, and I'm sure that MMT fits that role in some way. So, please. Okay, okay. First of all, both the, the, the information from both classes made one thing very clear, right? In the very first uh, paragraphs, that the beginning of all economics is the sale. Now, they didn't say which specific sale, but the sale is the beginning of all economics. And this was something that was emphasized both in the macro class and the micro class. And the, the, so although I didn't have any idea, I mean, we, we were told in, in, in elementary school that the dollar is an IOU issued by the federal government. But there wasn't a lot of specifics to that, okay? It was that, but that was a given. So um, when I asked, you know, how did they how did they get the money? It was well, it was issued by the federal government. And I said, well, that's not my question. Is how do you make a, the the first sale? And I could say, being my dad was a business owner. Okay, okay, I was the oldest kind of business owner. I was not, you know, there's, there's two types of sons of business owners. One that sits in, in the office and, and, and keeps uh, the boss uh, validated, and the other is uh, cheap labor, okay? I was the latter, <laughs> okay? Some of, there, there, is, there is some of each in, in, in some families, but um, the, the fact is, though, what I did learn from being in a family with, uh, you know, a family business, and in an industry that had government contracts, because if you want to do work for veterans, you have to have a, a contract with the veterans. So I understood that the federal government contracts the private sector to do stuff. And we did. I, you know, the, the paperwork is expensive, but, but I grew up with, with understanding that that if you want to be a contractor, you have to follow certain very specific rules, do things a certain way, and 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 accept their fee schedules, 
okay, whatever that is, which in, in, a, in some industries is exorbitant in comparison to other industries. You know, they pay, they, they pay the federal government pays really good uh, in some industries, but it, but it decides. Basically, the, uh, the, the people that oversight, uh, oversight that, that industry are, um, write up recommendations and Congress basically says, okay, these are the rules. So we know, we all know from, uh, you know, watching the news and whatnot that, that they sometimes pay, you know, several thousand dollars for a hammer or a toilet seat. And way too much for uh, an F-35 or whatever aircraft, uh, aircraft they're using. And they don't always have competitive bidding uh, for the things that they do. You know, I grew up with some understanding of, of that. Knew that there was a lot that, that needs to be questioned. Uh, well, my understanding of economics at the end of 2016, um, what was missing was that the um, order of operations for the creation of, of, of the dollar. That, that specific piece was not there all of this time, all these years of me trying to figure out what, what's missing in this picture. You actually sound very familiar. You actually sound very similar to uh, Johnny Axan. I interviewed Johnny Axan. He, he, yeah, no, exactly, he said almost exactly yeah. the same thing as you just did. Is that you knew no, something was off with the order of operations, but you didn't. You couldn't put your finger on it until around Bernie Sanders. One of the other, the, one of the other itches that never really got scratched was back in the seventies when they were deciding to go to a fiat system. You, you, the tension, anytime you, you, you put your attention on those, uh, newspapers and, and, and periodicals that were, um, that were writing stories about, you know, whether we should go to a fiat system or not and whatnot, there was a lot, a lot of tension for anybody that paid attention. You know, I was, like I said, I was, you know, 18 and, and whatnot, and I'm thinking, man, the adults are about to break bad on each other over this, but nobody's talking about why. And I thought, there's, there's something crazy here. Now, it, it was, really wasn't obvious to me that, that we didn't need to attach the currency to a commodity, and yet it didn't make sense that we did. That's sort of where the bug was in my thought system. But when I watched that go down, I said, you're right. There's no good reason to attach our, our, our dollar to, so why, why, why are these people so upset over, uh, dumping the gold system? Well, because those people started it from the beginning because they had gold reserves. If the federal government and all the other federal governments around the world, start hoarding all this gold, the value of their gold goes up. Hmm. And if they own a gold and if they go if they own a gold mine by any chance, then everything they mine out the the value of it goes up. So I can understand why people would argue for a gold standard and 
if they made people who don't have investment in gold think that the value of the dollar is less, okay, they can get basically the clan to back them on this, even though they don't, the, the clan doesn't understand that it's not necessary, it's just what people up the hierarchy want. And my intuition told me that this is the kind of thing that was going on, but I didn't, I, I being, like I say, 19 years old, and no, no degree in, in, especially in MMP, I had no way to argue in a, in, a, in a way that made sense. I just knew, okay, somebody out there knows that they can make more money in a fiat system than they can in a gold standard system. And they are people at the top of the food chain. I suspected then that it was the banking industry. You know, people, somebody in the banking industry who were not, who were invested in other things other than just gold or that, that, that their, whatever investments they had in gold was of lesser significance to what they wanted to see grow more. And I suspected this, but I didn't have any proof or evidence of it. So this, this whole set of thought processes of my speculation is carried through all of those years. And to tell you the truth, Jeff, um, I expected that some very intelligent economist sitting in a back room who had probably either just been threatened to lose his job for speaking truth to power or someone who had already been cast out because uh, they, they were speaking truth to power at some university were going to write a book and clear all this up, and it was going to become, you know, MMT, you know, b before the end of the 70s. And it never happened. But I, I was, I sat on the edge of my seat waiting for that, that other shoe to drop. I was actually, at, at the, at, at, after the election, I was wanting to know if the movement was going to survive, was going to continue on after Bernie, and whether Bernie was going to run again in 2020. Uh, any news, and I was looking, and um, it was about a week after the election, I ran across uh, Steve Grumbine, and he didn't get three sentences out before it, everything fell into place. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it, 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 it was all, because I had all the rest of the puzzle. I just, it was like having a giant 5,000-piece puzzle, and there were three little pieces Somebody had socked away in a drawer somewhere and hidden. And then Steve pops them into the puzzle, and the picture is what it is. What was it? And you can't, and you can't unsee it. So okay. three sentences. So what were those three sentences, or as close as you can remember? Well, one, one, one was that taxes don't fund spending. Okay. And, and, I, and I say, and they, I guess... Um, there weren't three consecutive sentences, but, but it was it was that one, and it was um, the uh, point about you know Zimbabwe and 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 uh, Venezuela and all that being being the destruction of the means of, of production, 
And it, it, within just a, a couple minutes, he said three things, and I can't remember the third one offhand. But, but it really, um, it really that's, not quite, that's not that much of an exaggeration. It really was just a few sentences that, that caused it to click in the But the thing of it is, most of us, most of us really, um, especially those of us who read and, and, and pay attention to the world and have for a while, um, we have all the pieces of the puzzle. It, it, it's just that some of them have intentionally been, uh, say, turned over uh, to where you where you're you're looking at the backside without the color. Now, personally, you know Patricia Pino, right? MMC podcast, right? Yes, yes. She describes this this uh, you know the the moment that she got a light bulb. Uh, yes that she had the entire picture already. She just yes. had to turn the whole thing upside down. Right. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, if people sometimes find it actually easier to turn the puzzle, too much color, too much stuff, input, makes it harder. Sometimes if you just look at the shapes, it's easier to put that puzzle together than trying to match all these colors. The thing of it is, it never happened until Grumby said, you know, those three sentences. I find it, it both a relief and a frustration in that uh, I really was trying pretty hard to get this. It was I considered it important, you know, understanding. So as, as, soon, as, as soon as that happened... You know, I bought King's book and um, uh, various. Uh, started watching uh, the blog sites, um, New Steve Economic Keen, Perspective. You bought Steve King's book? Is that who you said? That was the first book that I bought, Steve King's book. It was the first that I read across at that time. And what Steve was doing in that book is basically the way he was going about it was. was there was nothing specific that says this, but it sounded to me like he was trying to bridge a gap between the MMT thinkers and the Orthodox thinkers. Hmm. To say, you know, don't turn this into a boogeyman, look at it. Uh, even though Cain had had uh, some differences with some of the uh, earlier uh, MMT people, particularly when it came to... Um, uh, currency exchange and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Most of everything he he, he said he said is you know, MMT. Even when he's reticent to uh, to call it that. Right. No, it, it, from that moment on in in, in November of sixteen, uh, I've tried to read everything because what the people running the Fed have done is they've turned the puzzle over. They were afraid that all of these senators would say, well, well, let's just give every state a trillion dollars. And, and of course, then inflation would kill us all. So we can't do that. They basically decided they're going to keep operating as if they're on a gold standard. And they're going to, but they're not going to tell the people that's what they're doing. They're not going to tell the people, well, we're going to go through a fiat system, but we're not sure we can trust a fiat system because there was so much that they that 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 generation didn't know. 
they, they had, it's not like they, they didn't have fiat systems in the past. It's just that in a world this size, uh, with this much you know, world dynamic going on, they didn't know what to expect. So one of the ways that they did that to keep this gold standard con game alive was to call our savings instruments what we commonly would call a war bond. Everybody in the 60s and 70s, they knew what a war bond was. The kids were all encouraged to take their $5 and, and, and buy a bond. And in 10 years, it'll be worth $7.50. And that's how you say, okay? But what did they do? They decided, well, we're going to call it a debt instrument. We're going to call it the national debt as a way of hiding the fact that the federal government could spend, they decided to use the language pattern to frame it as if the federal government were a household. That would make it easy for everybody to understand, and it would keep everybody from wanting the government to overspend. And it's, that, it's, it's no more complex than that. It is not a debt. It's an asset. It's the asset in our bank. It's an asset in our savings, in our pocket, in, in the allowance we give our children. It's an asset. Well, that brings us to the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were, that, that triggered me to ask you to do an interview, which was my post asking for advice on uh, the concept of so-called borrowing. Um, so I actually, if I, I'd like to take a brief, I'd like to send you a link to, mm-hmm. to an updated version uh, after I got all the feedback from you and others. And I'd like you to just take a quick look at it and then, then we're going to talk about that. It's just, it's just, you know, it'll take just a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hold on. Sure. Excellent. Jeff? Thanks. Excellent. That, that is very concise, and, and it, it, it's exactly that second paragraph, okay, was exactly what I would, I would have, have you say, and, and I, I, I'm, I love the way that you said it. Um, you know, it, it is no way borrows, okay, and it basically... It's securitization, and that's really what it is. And uh, framing it as a, a borrowing, anybody who has, who has read this, these two paragraphs you read in the three, um, that still uses the word borrowing, they're gaslighting somebody. It's, it's not, the federal government does not borrow. There's no reason for any issuer, currency issuer, to borrow in the currency that it issues. And um, I'm, I'm very pleased with, with, with what you've done here. 
Well, and, um, if, if it has partially come from you and, and from the others that I got help with uh, when I asked, when I posted the original version, um, and I'll, I'll put links in the show notes. Um, and I also, as I mentioned, the newer version, Joe Firestone really helped. Um, yeah. You know, like Joe is a I, great source. Oh, he's he's wonderful. I'm actually I'm talking with him again tomorrow night. Um, uh, oh, I forgot to release part two with him today. I should have done that this morning. Um, uh, yeah, so can you, can you, a lot of people call it borrowing. A lot of very official sounding people call it borrowing. A lot of very, you know, prominent publications call it borrowing. Um, so I thought it was, even though I know it's not actually borrowing, I thought that there was an official terminology that called it borrowing. And same with debt that uses these household analogy words in an official or legal capacity because that's what it used to sort of used to be during the gold standard. So can you talk about, like, do you know that it is sort of used officially even though it's yeah. absolutely not official? Or, I mean, is it? Is yeah. it in any sense? Yeah, okay. Jeff, we're, we're going to get going again away from economics and back into sociology. Okay, uh, not about me this time, but about, but about the cultures of the world, about humanity. That's what this is about. Uh, first of all, uh, change is is disruptive for people. Okay, and we have habituated certain language yeah, which patterns. Which people? Which people? Well, the thing, the thing of it is, that's, that's a, a, an excellent point in that how invested is a particular individual in keeping things the way that it is or making a change. And whether it be this topic or any other topic, this is, this is where, where we're at uh, in, ter- in, in terms of using that, that term that we know is inaccurate. Let me, let me, being the kind of a person that I am, I'm going to give you a strange little thought. You know, if you looked outside and you looked at the tree, what color would you say that the leaves on the tree are? So it's not a trick green. question, and yet it is. So, okay, okay. So most of the time green. That's right. Okay, in the spring, particularly, the trees are green. Except that when you look at what you already know to be true, is that those leaves absorb uh, the light wavelength of a certain color and reflect back other wavelengths of that our eyes perceive as another color. With the thing of it is, it reflects black, the blue, and yellow wavelengths. And thus we see green. But the leaves are not green. Because they take into themselves only the red wavelengths, the leaves are red. Now, that's a language phenomenon. Basically, the truth is the leaves are red. But how much luck do you think I would have in convincing society to say, oh, the, tree, the leaves on that tree are red? 
I wouldn't have much luck with that, would I? I'm not understanding it yet. So I guess I guess that answers the question. So they make that red wavelength a part of themselves. So they are are red internally. They are red. In other words, we're looking at the leaves from a point of view that is not what the leaf is, but we're looking at it, we're using a language pattern that reflects who we are. So we okay. perceive it as green. We perceive it as green because that's well, but, 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 but just because we perceive it as such doesn't make it what it is. Uh, this, is this is why we need to question not only ourselves, our understanding of a given context or topic, but also the language patterns that we use to describe it. And that goes for everything historically that we've ever done. The truth is different from our model, from what we're espousing to be the truth. So um, if this is going to take time, um, you know, getting those people to stop calling savings instruments uh, government borrowing, when in fact we know it is basically the government is securitizing your assets for you. So in layperson's terms, securitization means that the government is making your financial assets more secure. They are standing behind them. They are ensuring that, that they, as a government, will guarantee it. So yes. Can be more, I never, more, I never, more, I never more, that before. More secure than they would be in a private bank. Wow, I never, I never registered that before. Wow, why? Wow, so, but those that will find us on this change, why would, why would they want to fight us? Well, the, the reason that they would want to continue that frame, we're talking specifically, I'm thinking, you know, Peterson Foundation um, and, 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 and the other um, uh, conservative foundations that, that uh, basically push um, balanced budget policy and, and, and like, and like uh, that. The, uh, like uh, the uh, Democratic Party? <laughs> that could well, be I mean, you know, we know, we know now, we know now over, over the last four years, Nancy Pelosi has made it clear that she is a, a, a very, very big fan of the Peterson Foundation. Yeah. Okay. There, 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 there's, nothing, there's nothing left about that organization. And never has been. I mean, Pete Peterson and, and, and um, Buchanan and all, they were all very much about keeping this secret, this using this borrowing terminology. But why? Why is that important that they use this frame? Well, because they have billions and billions of dollars being securitized in the safest place in the world. And yet... They're still, the government is paying interest for a service, if anything, if the government needed the money, which it doesn't. But if you went in anywhere into the private sector, they would be charging you for keeping that secure situation there. Mm. 
Okay, so, you, you know, if you go and you try to you buy a, a, a CD, do they want to pay interest on a CD? It is tradition that they pay some kind of interest on a CD, but they don't even want to buy you a CD. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, the private sector is not securing anything. They're, they're not in the securing in business. Okay, they're in the speculation business and in the profit-making business. But as long as the, uh, the word borrowing is being used by uh, the banking industry and those um, wanting us to not spend into the economy, the economy will stay in recession to a much greater extent which then forces people who would not otherwise borrow money to borrow money in order to survive. And that's what we as reformers, as revolutionaries, have to get clear in our minds and in our language patterns and in our ability to, to, to argue in debate with others the fact that that borrowing it's a gaslight. Is there any truth, legal truth, whatever kind of truth, to the term borrowing? Is there any kind of truth to it at all? I don't mean I don't mean literal because obviously not it's not literally borrowing. It's not it's not practically borrowing. Is there any truth to using the term borrowing, whether it's legal, whether it's I don't know. Is it just, I guess, it's just a, a convenient relic from, from the gold standard? Because it is used everywhere. Does that make it true? Is, is, that, is that the criteria for truth? But is there any, is, there, is it in any official documents that you're aware of? Is it, is it in a, you know, it, it's so... It, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's in official documents everywhere. Because that is the, the language pattern that the culture has adopted. Okay, so, so this is, so actually this is standing up to those who use it in an official way. Is your bank borrowing money from you when you open a savings account? And they won't answer the question. Because I don't use the word borrowing in that context. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. That's clear. That's clear. It doesn't matter if it's official or not. It's just wrong. If, if we notice a difference, that if we talk to our politicians uh, at a uh, town hall, or we watch, I, I don't know, I've, have you watched the um, Paul Randall Ray with, with the other three economists? at the budget hearing last year? No, I know what you're talking about, but no, his, his congressional testimony. Right. Well, uh, Steve Womack is the senator here from my district, okay? And he went on and on about trying to, trying to run down Randall Ray and, 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 and the borrowing and all that stuff, all framed in the but there was no legal jargon in anything that he said. It was basically fear-mongering 
meaningless tribe. So um, do you, um, would you agree with me that part of the problem that Congress has is it, it is not honoring the process that is designed to be able to put the spotlight on the fiscal condition of our country in such a way that we can begin to make those established priorities. And I, again, not at the risk of using the word poster child again, let me remind you, yesterday we passed a continuing resolution. We are seven, almost eight weeks into the fiscal year. We don't have a budget, and we push the spending of the country again to the 20th of December, to Christmas, and we'll probably do it again, and maybe two or three more times, um, is the lack of the um, uh, uh, execution of our process, or a better process, contributing to the problems that we're facing today. Dr. Blanchard. I would not think of myself as an expert on these issues, uh, but yes, from where I stand at a distance, it looks like the congressional budget process is not ideal and could be substantially improved. Dr. Ray? Or does the process matter? Look, capacity to repay. I'm not sure what that would mean for a federal government that is an ongoing um, uh, concern that has only repaid its debt one time, 1837, followed by our first depression. We do not have to repay the debt. What we have to do is make the interest payments. That's okay. what we need to do. All right, well, all right, so let me hit pause here a minute and just focus on interest payments uh, for just a moment. Today, uh, as evidenced by one of the, uh, a couple of our members have indicated that the net interest on the debt this year with very low interest rates is gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion, which is more than half of what we spend on our constitutional challenge to provide for the common defense of the country. Um, and, and there's been the term crowding out used many times here today. We are crowding out the investments that you gentlemen are suggesting that we continue to make to grow our, grow our economy, help uh, vulnerable Americans. The things that we would normally spend that money on, we're spending on the net interest on the debt. That's money that could be being spent elsewhere, which I think makes my point that deficits and debt do matter because it is crowding out the available money that we have to be able to effectively fund the discretionary budget of the U.S. government. Well, I your mean, turn. you put that constraint on yourselves, and I understand your political uh, dilemma here. Interest payments, I think all three of us agree, are a very inefficient kind of spending. First, half of it's going abroad. And the other half is going into the United States, but it doesn't tend to go where you want it to go. It doesn't tend to lead to economic growth. So I'm not advocating trying to ramp up interest payments. Crowding out theory, there are two approaches, one loanable funds, the other is ISLM. The, the evidence just does not show that there's crowding out. Now, it may crowd out your spending because you put constraints on uh, the, the budget, budgeting process. It doesn't crowd out in the real world by raising interest rates and reducing investment. All that government spending goes somewhere into the economy, and it creates uh, net income for the private sector, which should encourage investment rather than discouraging investment. So, so the constraints that you suggest that we put on ourselves are only there for, for one reason, and that is not to explode this deficit and debt situation 
even further exacerbate the situation as we currently have, which most people would agree is already beyond any capacity for us to be able to repay, and it's just going to lead to further complications in taxes for future generations. Dr. Bernstein, real quickly, uh, a thought from you, and then well, I'll come to Well, just on the process point, because what you said resonates with me. I'm going to be uh, straight with you about that. Um, I mean, he, he stands up at a town meeting right here in Northwest Alabama that I, that I went to and, and said that the federal government is broke. And when I shout out, the federal government creates the currency. About two-thirds of the room, which are his fans, look at me like there's about to be a lynching. <laughs> okay. So are we going to hear the end of the word, the use of the word borrowing anytime soon? No, I don't think so. And what we want to do is to make sure that even our economists that are tutoring us are starting to throw that word out more and more. There's nothing more secure, no matter what happens to the economy. But if, if, if Warren Mosler has his way and they, and they zip the, you know, zero interest rate policy, they're still going to put their money in there because it's secure and they don't want it to be disappear in some private bank that went defunct. Hmm, interesting. They, so what, it's not, it's not, it, making interest is part of it that you can keep rolling it over and basically accumulate infinite wealth. It's also the fact that they, it's simply secure. Exactly. exactly. Those people that are using the word borrowing are not, are not wanting to the public to, to realize that um, if they would buy those treasuries anyway. Hmm. But, uh, all right, so we're, we're close to two hours. We may already be at two hours. Uh, can you connect this, you know, borrowing is the wrong term, and it's not just wrong, it serves, uh, you know, it's a false scarcity, and if, you, if we get rid of the term borrowing, then all of a sudden that undermines their talk of we're going broke, and therefore, you know, then they're going to have to choose, you know, hard, make hard decisions, which, lo and behold, always affect the disadvantage. Can you connect that to the other, like, uh, the other big false narratives that, that feed into this false scarcity? Um, well, let me see. Uh, the best way to, uh, because there, uh, the taxes, the, the concept that taxes um, kind of spending was actually a misconception that FBI himself perpetuated in, in that he wanted the American people to feel as though they had an invested interest in the public purse. And so it was a myth out there that some people understood and some people didn't. So he went along with this, um, you know, federal taxes on spending mythology, knowing that it wasn't true. And um, I can't remember who it was 
that said that if the public knew the truth about what we do at the Fed, there would be a revolution right then. And the fact is, that may not be true, okay? If, the, if it had been framed back then, what's going on, uh, we, we wouldn't have necessarily revolted against what the Fed was doing, but we would revolt against who they're doing it for. All of this that we do at MMT is very, really very much the only the very first step. Misrepresentations through our language patterns are an important step that, that must be taken. It, you know, taxes don't fund spending has to be understood. Securitization rather than borrowing has to be understood. Sectoral balances have to be understood. But, and it's very important that we, we get everybody on board to the right framing, the right concepts, and the right truth about how um, currency is created, how it's securitized, and um, uh, what the purpose of taxes are. But um, these, these concepts are not necessarily tied to each other uh, other than as what to do with the currency when it gets to this point in a cycle. I mean, ta taxes are about one end of a cycle of currency's uh, movement through uh, the economy. It has to be broken down very specifically. Uh, why inflation can be mitigated by spending into those resources of shortage supply first. And what happens when you simply dump money into an outcome in general terms without consideration of all the component resources that make that outcome happen? Okay, because historically, the people in power have just wanted what they want. They want a, a new um, aircraft carrier or submarine. Does anybody in, in Congress ask, well, do we have enough copper for the wiring? Do we have enough uranium for the uh, nuclear power plant? You know, well, what they've been being told is the private sector will figure all that stuff out for you. You don't have to worry, worry yourself over that. And that the fact of the matter is, the federal government needs to worry their, them, their, themselves over that. Because they could be acquiring all of these resources at a fraction of the cost. And not, not that the, the federal government's going to lack, but, they, but, but because then they can spend into the economy differently that will create a better outcome rather than just putting money in this specific group of people's pocket. Okay. Right. So yeah. I hope I haven't gone over anybody's over head with this technology, but, but the fact is, you know, we, we have to be invested in the revolution. That's my message to every listener out there. A while ago you brought up a splinter in your mind that's just slowly driving you mad. That was Jeff Ginter. 
And yeah. what he what he was talking about was uh, the people know that something's wrong, but yeah. they don't know the they, they don't know what is wrong, and they don't know what the real solution is. And yeah. when that and so so they rise up, but they do so in a disorganized fashion. And so the, the, the example that he gave was uh, Occupy Wall Street, and which yeah. gave us uh, the term the ninety nine percent. Yeah. And so it was it was it was crushed. And and Jeff's assertion, which I think is a good one, is that they knew something was wrong, but they couldn't put their finger on what it was and they couldn't therefore and if you don't know what the problem is, then obviously you can't figure out what the solution is. And the way that he yeah. said it was that you can't escape the prison if you don't if you don't if you can't define the wall. Yeah. So MMT helps define the walls of our prison. And yes. Bernie Sanders defines the problems in our overall society, money and politics, and especially inequality. And he, de- and he defines the solutions to those problems, Medicare for all, universal college, canceling student debt, uh, Green New Deal, you know, and, and what, he's, what Bernie is basically saying, you know, although he, you know, spoke taxes, whatever, but his policies really reflected MMT. So it, MMT is part of the truth. It's just an element of the truth. Bernie defined the truth of our society and our politics. And, but now we know how federal finance actually works. And now what Bernie has taught us is now we know what to use that federal, those powers for. But now what we're missing is we're now the next step is, you know, sort of revolution like you were talking about, which is how do we take this knowledge and actually start to make it happen? Because it ain't happening. It's just not happening. <laughs> but, well, Jeff, let, so that, let me address that. Let me address that. Right yeah, please do. And please do. And use this as a, as a way to sort of round out the whole discussion. Yes, exactly. And that's what, and that's, and that's what I would like to do. Um, the, the, the people, because people are out there right now not knowing what it is that they can do. Well, how can I make it? Do, and they need to be okay with not necessarily doing something profound, what they actually need to do is value doing something that they have a, a nature, a, a bent, a, a, an intent to do, and that is to interact with each other. About our role as individuals in our society, we have to reframe ourselves and say, I may not have ever met you, Jeff, or any one of these other uh, real progressives out here in person, okay, but you're part of something very important, significant to me, and that that I'm not here just to vent stuff. I'm here to make the narrative a functional dialogue that will thus influence how we give permission for the policy to unfold. That's my job, is to put my two cents on the table and say, this is what I consider to be adult behavior and adult policy. I can talk about how mad I am about who did what, but that's not what I'm here for. What I'm here for is 
to find out what I relate to you in terms of policy going forward. That's my job. And that's what I want other people to see as their job. And it's an important job. We all want the same place, thing, a safe place for ourselves and our families to go through life. We, there's no economic reason not to have it. So, you know, let, let's do this. You, you know, you actually you actually bring me back to the very beginning of our conversation with about you losing your two sons and pre- preparing your sons at a young age to know that they're not going to be around for as long as you know most people will be around and getting them okay with that and getting your family okay yeah, the rest of your family you know to understand that and be okay with it and it's like you know on our current path we're doomed climate collapse, you know, our, our, you know, with Bernie just dropping out last week or, you know, recently, you know, on our current path, there's really not much hope. But mm-hmm. in a way, that is, in a, in a sense, coming to terms with we're not going to have as long a life as we want on our current path and becoming okay with that and understanding that. But we do have the power to change that path. We, we have the power to change that path. So in a sense, we need to understand where we are, which is on our current path, we're going to have societal collapse, you know, mm-hmm. relatively soon. But we are not trapped on that path. And MMT and Bernie Sanders gives us the power to put the truth out there and to change the framing to be more accurate and truthful and to change our path. Yes. We we can set a boundary that gives us as adult members of the society permission that limits the power of sociopathy. We have that ability. We have that power. We just need to use that power. Being adult in a healthy and holistic society. That's what we need to focus on. That's great. That's great. And, you know, that non-economic part of our conversation really sets an important context for the economic conversation. I believe everyone, everyone has a story that that does exactly that, that has a relationship between what is economic, what is personal, what is political, what is social. There's no real separation. We just use these language patterns of separation to help us sort which piece of the puzzle goes where. All it'll take is hopefully about three sentences. Some, sometimes it will, and sometimes part of our coping means stretching our attention span. And, well, of course, we have to be up to that. We can't press each other to do that, or we can't even press ourselves sometimes to stretch our attention span beyond its capabilities. But if we're persistent, 
we will build the necessary bridges to get where we want to go. Wow. All right. Well, this was, this was, uh, this is enlightening. It was very different, obviously different than I expected. Um, thanks for uh, telling your story. I don't. And... Jeff, most most people don't really <laughs> don't really listen to, uh, to to my sort of fringe perspective on the world for uh, a few hours at a time. So so I I, I thank you for. Uh, Turn it out, and if you can make any use of it, and you, like I said, you did a, a really good job on this borrowing concept. So if you can distill this conversation into something that's useful and whatnot out there into the world, I will certainly be one happy camper. Um, know that my heart is with everything you're doing. It, it's important to me. That's really nice to hear. And I, you say you're fringe, but I don't think you are. I, I think that's one of the most important things that Bernie did for us was not share the politics that not just share the truth of our politics, but also created a community to make us realize that we have a family of people who have been called fringe, but are actually exactly where we are. Very extreme. We really are. Yeah. Very good. That, well put, too, Jeff. That was, that was, that was well said. All right, well, Mark, this was great. Uh, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape a Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all the final processing in the Reaper Digital Audio Workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app.